So about 15 years ago, um, I was at home watching a YouTube video and uh, there's a famous atheist, written lots of books and I've read uh, two or three of his books actually, um, listened to his podcast and I was watching him on YouTube. He's in a university setting and he's going on and on and on about the absurdity of Christianity. And this wasn't like the title of his talk, but basically that was what it was about. And as I listened, and this was a, a really a defining moment for me, um, caused me to shift some things in terms of not my belief, but in terms of my approach to how I preach and teach and some of the language I use. Um, it has occurred to me as I listened to him that his entire talk was based on an assumption, a false assumption, but on an assumption that many Christians hold and many, um, in fact, most evangelical Christians hold, the one I was raised on. And, and the, the assumption was a false assumption, but again, it, it that the basically he was whole, his whole talk was based on the assumption that the foundation of our faith, um, what makes Christianity viable, what makes Christianity Christianity sustainable and plausible, that the foundation of the Christian faith is a Bible without any errors, or, or to use the modern term, an inerrant. Bible. That was his assumption. So his argument went, hey, look at all these errors in the Bible. And he was pointing out historical errors and scientific errors and just some absurd things that were in the Old Testament in particular, and then some things in the New Testament as well. And his point is, look, these things aren't true. So if these things aren't true, the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, the Bible can't be trusted. If all of it isn't historically, mathematically, and scientifically accurate, then why would anybody believe any of it, right? That might as well just dispense with the whole thing. And at the end of the day, we should just dispense with Christianity. And the crowd goes wild. It was amazing. But according to this misguided assumption, unfortunately, that too many Christians hold on to, and it's what we're talking about today, is that the legitimacy of Christianity is precariously, and it's a little bit clunky statement, I made it up, that the legitimacy of Christianity sits precariously atop a collection of errorless or inerrant ancient texts. That was the assumption of his talk. And then he just dismantled the text. And if you dismantle the text, you dismantle the Bible, you dismantle Christianity, we're done here. The assumption being if there is an error in the Bible, Christianity becomes indefensible. It's a house of cards. You just pull out the creation account. You pull out Leviticus. You pull out some things from the New Testament. The whole thing comes crumbling down. Goodbye, Bible. Goodbye, Christianity. Now, this is not true, which will come as a relief to some of you, but will sound like heresy to others. So, pay close attention. Today, we're wrapping up our series that I've so enjoyed putting together, and I think some of you enjoy, have enjoyed as well, The Fundamentalist, subtitled, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. In this series, if you've not been tracking along with us, and I hope you'll go back and watch or listen to this entire series because each part builds on the other, the, uh, the, fun, the, the bottom line for this series is that we're asking the question, what must a person believe, not do, but what must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? We talk about the do part all the time because it's so important, because doing is what actually makes the difference, but we've stepped back from that to ask the question, okay, if I'm gonna be a Jesus follower, what must I believe in order to follow 
Jesus, what's essential? What's the irreducible minimum? And this is an important question because as you know, there are so many versions of Christianity. Christianity is like a big house of living rooms with front doors all facing the outside world. But every time you go into one of these rooms, these Christian rooms, these Christian traditions, these Christian denominations, Christian churches, you discover that each one has its own terms and conditions, its own expectations and traditions, its own Bible, its own text and its own interpretation of text and its own um, way of prioritizing the text. And we are part of that group. We're, we have our own traditions. We have our own way of approaching things. We have our own way of prioritizing certain texts over the other. So the question is, with all these differences, how do you know? Because the one thing that we all have in common, every church, every denomination, every expression of Christianity, every Christian tradition, the one thing we all have in common, including us, is we think we're right and that everybody else is not quite as right as we are, right? They just need to be as right as we are. They need to see the Bible the way we see it. They need to prioritize the way we see it, that we need to approach God and approach prayer and approach everything else the way that we see it. So everybody kind of feels like they're right. Then, and that's not such a big deal, but what really makes it complicated is that in every generation, beginning in the second century, this isn't new, in every generation, new and novel ideas get woven into the fabric of Christianity and get woven into the fabric of certain Christian traditions. And often these new and novel ideas get elevated to the point where they're considered essential, doctrine, fundamental. In other words, if you reject one of these new and novel or modern ideas, you're out. You're not a real Christian. You're not a real Jesus follower. So it creates all kinds of confusion because these things happen and change really almost every generation. And so the reason we're talking about this is because you're smart and you're honest and you're curious. And when smart, honest, curious people realize that non-essentials have been woven into the fabric of their particular church or their particular denomination or their particular faith tradition, thoughtful and honest people feel like they have to step back and reevaluate, not quit believing in God and not even quit believing in the deity of Jesus, but they, it's like, wait a minute, I... I, I you, you talk a lot about the Bible and you know the Bible, but I'm not sure you, you know Jesus. And so people feel the pressure to kind of deconstruct and to deconstruct is to say, hey, I need to tear this thing down to the bare essentials. I need to tear this down to the fundamentals so that I really know the foundation of what I believe and why I believe it. And I, I think my church has departed from it or I, I think my denomination got it wrong or I think my faith tradition isn't exactly right about that. So people step out and generally they just step out of organized religion and sometimes They never go back. So we're asking the question, what is fundamental? What is essential? What is fundamental in terms of what we must believe in order to be a follower of Jesus versus what's just cultural or what's familiar or what's comfortable or what's fashionable, but peripheral? So we've said so far, we've discovered seven things. And we've done these chronologically, basically as we follow Jesus through the gospel. So I'm gonna hit these real quick. And then for those of you who are watching, if you're at any of our local churches, we're gonna send you an email this week with the list of these eight fundamentals so that you can keep these in front of you. So here they are real quickly. Number one, Jesus is God's son and our king. We started with this one because this is what Jesus claimed about himself. Number two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God the father is like. That's what he claimed that one of his purposes in coming was. Number three, Jesus defines sin specifically as anything that harms you or others. Number four, that Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. And number five, that Jesus died for your sin 
to reconcile you to God. This is where many of us probably thought we would begin, but we don't discover this until the, toward the end of the journey with Jesus through the gospels. And then number six, that Jesus established an ecclesia, a movement, a group of people that we call the church. And the church, we discover, is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, and ultimately globally. And this is why number seven, Jesus said at the very end of this ministry, I want you to take what I've taught you and I want you to teach others. I want you to teach every nation and people in every nation and every generation to do what I've taught you to do and to view and approach God the way I have taught you to view and to approach God. So today, as we wrap this up, number eight, we're gonna talk specifically about the Bible. Now, this one's a little different because Jesus never mentions the Bible because there was no Bible. The Bible wasn't assembled the way we think about the Bible until the fourth century. So this one is a little different, but we're asking the same question. What must we believe about the Bible or what must one believe about the Bible to be a follower of Jesus? In other words, what is essential? And here's what I wanna say to some of you. If you left, if you left your faith, if you left the Christian faith because of something in or about the Bible, I'm so glad you're listening and I'm so glad you're watching. This is for you. This is the Bible my dad gave me when I was 16 years old. Um, he gave it to me and he, he had marked it with this yellow ribbon. He said, Andy, I want you to take this. This is, I wanna give you this Bible and I want you to memorize David's speech to Goliath when he went down into the Valley of Allah to you know, fight Goliath. And I want you to memorize that speech. He said, and I want you to memorize it. So whenever you're tempted to sin, you just quote this speech back to your temptation because that's like a Goliath in your life. I thought, I love that. So I memorized the entire speech. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day I'm gonna strike you down. And then it gets great. It's about gore and heads falling and the birds are picking the flesh off the Philistines and they chase them. And it's the perfect passage for a 16 year old to memorize. Now it's kind of a long speech. And I think the reason he wanted me to memorize it is by the time you finish quoting that speech back to your temptation, you've pretty much forgotten what you were tempted. <laughs> pretty much forgotten what you were tempted. Now, here's the thing. Like many of you, when I, when I, was, I, was, I was raised in church, preacher's kid, I was given a, you know, a little red Bible with my name on the front and I was given this Bible and had several Bibles. But when the Bible was first presented to me, it was presented to me as God's word, all true through and through. God's word, all true, through and through. And I believed that before I ever read it, like many of you. And most evangelical Christians, of which I am one, most evangelical Christians hold to some biblical view or some, some view of biblical inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy. Um, and and you, most of you probably do as well. However, and I'm not picking on you, I'm just pointing out something that's kind of obvious. Regardless of which words you choose, if you choose one of these words, you probably couldn't define it exactly, but you, you just believe God gave us his word and God spoke and, and we have it. And you know, there's just a general sense that the Bible's inspired or it's infallible or there are no errors, it's, it's inerrant. So when I chose to go into ministry, 
I thought if I'm gonna spend the rest of my life teaching from this and preaching from this, I need to know exactly. It's not enough to say it's inspired. Okay, what does that mean? It's infallible. What does that mean in error? Really, there are no errors. So I chose the most conservative um, graduate school in America when it comes to a high view of the Bible and the inerrancy of scripture, Dallas Theological Seminary. And it was not part of the denomination I grew up in, which was kind of a problem because when I chose to go there, my dad was actually the president of the denomination whose schools I did not choose to attend. So that was an interesting conversation. But the reason was I needed to know and I wanted to know and I chose a grad school accordingly. And I had the privilege of studying under this gentleman, Dr. Norman Geisler. We call him Storman Norman Geisler. He was amazing and he was brilliant. And he was the editor of this, of this book, Inerrancy. Uh, this is a standard textbook in every conservative um, evangelical school, seminary, graduate school, or college. It's, it's still in print. It's still, it's still a textbook. It's, it's dense. Again, it's, it's very academic. So in his lifetime, he passed away in 2019, July of 2019. He was the champion of biblical inerrancy. And I took every single class I could under Dr. Geisler. I remember walking out of an apologetics class one day. This is in Dallas, Texas. I'll never forget. In fact, when we visited the school a few years ago, I, I took the people with me to the place where I was standing. I walked out of class one day after sitting through one of his lectures. And when he would finish... You know, there, there was like a bell that rang. I don't know if they still do that in school, but we actually had a bell, you know? And we wouldn't move. It was just like, it was, I remember walking with my briefcase coming down. We had to wear ties, you know, and I walked down. I can remember where I was standing on the sidewalk and I looked up in the sky, blue Dallas, clear sky. And I said under my breath, God, I've always believed you were real. Today, I know with certainty. It was, it was so powerful to sit under his teaching. And he taught us the doctrine of biblical um, inerrancy. Now, a few years ago, some of you may remember this. I did a series called, Who Needs God? And during the series, Who Needs God? I talked about the Bible in ways that we're gonna talk about the Bible today. And some evangelical leaders took me to task and on social media um, said all kinds of critical, rude things. Andy doesn't believe the Bible, Andy, da, 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 da. And the problem with when they criticize me, they're really criticizing you. And I don't care if they criticize me because I, I just take the most cr- strange ones and make pictures of them and put them on my phone, show my kids. So it doesn't bother me. <laughs> But when they start criticizing the people in our church, oh, you know, they're just following along, they're goats, you know, they're mindless. And I'm like, are you kidding? We, we have like the smartest, most insightful, most curious group of Jesus followers in the world in our churches. That's, that's what I think about you. But anyway, so they were critical of me during this series. So about two thirds of the way through the series, Sunday afternoon, never forget, sitting on the front porch after Sunday, kind of, you know, just trying to recover a little bit. And the phone rings, I look, and it's from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I only knew two people who live in Charlotte. So I answer the phone and I hear this voice, Andy, this is Norm Geisler. Now there's only three people that make me feel like I've been sent to the principal's office, okay? (laughs) Um, If God called me, you know, if my dad called me or Norm Geisler, it's like, okay, am am I in trouble? And I'm telling you, here's what he said. Andy, I see you've gotten yourself into a little trouble. He said, people don't understand apologetics and they don't understand what the Bible is. You keep going, that's good apologetic preaching. I know, and I'm like, thank you, Bill. You don't have to clap, but thanks. Anyway, so, but that's, that's all I needed to hear. Now, there's a reason I'm talking so much about me today, but I'll get there in a minute. So that was so, and then he said this, he said, but you need to write about it. It's not enough to preach about it. People don't understand. And he just 
talked and you know, he's very academic and just brilliant beyond brilliant that you know, the average Christian doesn't think in these terms. So Andy, when you say those kinds of things, it just, it just confuses them. And I'm thinking, not the people in our church. They, I didn't get any criticism from the people that were actually in our church. But anyway, he said, you need to write about it. I'm like, like write a book about it? He goes, yep, you have to write about it or people are never, I'm like, I don't have time to write a book about it. That's so academic. He said, you gotta write about it. So when I, I wrote the book Irresistible in response to Dr. Norman Geisler, who taught me the doctrine of inerrancy, that's why, where, where the book came from. So the point is, the reason I'm telling you all that is, I understand the tension that we're about to step in for the next few minutes. And I'm gonna assume he's listening today to ensure I don't lead any of you astray, okay? So that's kind of the background. But the bottom line is this, bottom line is this. When it comes to what you must believe about the Bible in order to be a follower of Jesus, it really boils down to this. You have to believe when it comes to the Bible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are reliable accounts of actual events. That's it. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are, are a reliable account of an actual of actual events. Because if you adopt any one of the four gospels as something that's a reliable account of actual events, you're there because both of all four of these gospels present Jesus as God's son and your king. And everything we've talked about in this series flows from that one simple idea. It means that what he said about God is true, what Jesus said about you is true, and what Jesus said about the Hebrew scriptures is true. That Christianity does not rise or fall on our ability to prove that the Bible is without error. I learned this from the guy who edited the book, Inerrancy, because people were following, we've talked about this before, people were following Jesus for 300 plus years before the first Bible was assembled. First century Christians, you know this, first century Christians, they didn't follow Jesus because of something they read. They followed Jesus because they'd seen him crucified and raised from the dead. Now, is there a case to be made? I mean, is there a case to be made that the Bible is without error? Yes, there is a case to be made. And if you'll give me three weeks of your undivided attention, I can make the case because I studied under the master, right? But is this view of the Bible an essential to being a follower of Jesus? No. Our faith does not rise or fall on our ability or your ability to prove that the Bible has no errors. Christianity rises and falls on the identity of Jesus, which is, is validated by the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why, this is why, if you're curious about these kinds of things, this is why Christian apologist, a Christian apologist is somebody who contends for the faith publicly. This is why Christian apologists, and by the way, Dr. Geisler was an extraordinary debater. Um, he would debate um, um, folks in university settings in da- around the city of Dallas, or really even different parts of the state of Texas. And we would all go to sit in the back and just watch him dismantle his opponents because he was so ridiculously smart, a little bit snarky, a little bit funny, and just kind of a scary person in terms of his personality. And so we would watch him just, I mean, he could defend the faith like crazy, but here's what you'll learn. And those of you who are a little bit geeky and you love to watch debate, you know, between Christians and atheists, what you'll discover is this, that Christian, apologi- uh, Christian apologists, 
They always build their case on the resurrection of Jesus, not the inspiration of the Bible because they know that the foundation of our faith is not an inspired text. The the foundation of our faith is the event of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, just to, you know, kind of bold this and italicize this and to underscore the importance of this, I wanna read to you one of the most overlooked and yet one of the most important statements in the New Testament written by the man who wrote about half the New Testament, the apostle Paul. Here's Here's what he said. We've, we've looked at this before, but the significance of this, you can't overlook the significance of this. And again, if you've lost faith over something in or about the Bible, I just want you to lean in. Listen, listen to what Paul, again, who's credited with writing about half the New Testament. I mean, if anybody's gonna say, hey, the Bible's the foundation of the faith because after all, I wrote half the New, I mean, this is the guy, but here's what he said. He said, if Christ, if Jesus has not been raised All my preaching, my entire ministry, me risking my life going around the Mediterranean rim is useless. Wait, wait, Paul, wait. All of your preaching, he says, not just mine, ready? Our preaching, Peter's preaching, John's preaching, James, the brother of Jesus preaching, and Matthew's preaching, anybody who's out there preaching about Jesus, it is useless. Wait, you're, you're telling us that Your entire ministry, the integrity of your entire ministry hinges on an event that took place outside the walls of Jerusalem, the resurrection of Jesus? Absolutely. Then he doubles down. Not only is my preaching useless, so is your faith. To which we say, wait a minute, that's unfair. You don't even know me. He's like, I don't have to know you. If you're basing anything in your life on the claims of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus, it's useless, it's a waste of time because the only reason we take that rabbi from Nazareth seriously was the resurrection because it affirmed what he claimed about himself. The problem with Jesus was not what he taught. The problem with Jesus is what he said about himself. And only crazy people say the kinds of things he said about himself. Crazy people and the people for whom it's true. And the resurrection of Jesus validated his claims to be the son of God, the the resurrection and the life, and your king. But Paul's still not done. A few verses later, he says this. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We're like, wait, 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 I'm not in my sins. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And, and Peter and Paul saying, it's a fairy tale. None of it's true. Everything I've done is a waste of time. All of your faith, all, it's all fiction. You've just convinced yourself it's a fairy tale. None of this is real. None of this is matters except for that single event that changed everything. And you are still separated from God, regardless of what you think, because no one has paid for your sin because Jesus was claiming things about himself that were not true. His point is simply this, that the foundation of our faith is an event, the resurrection, that launched a movement, the church of Jesus, that ultimately assembled the first Bible in the fourth century. So is the Bible important? (laughs) It's extraordinarily important. Important. While the Bible is not the foundation of our faith, it's certainly not irrelevant to our faith, but, and this is my point, this is so important, there is no single, there is no single modern view of inspiration that is essential to following 
Jesus. And this is why I wanted to talk about this. There is no, I'm gonna come back to this word in a minute. There is no single modern view of inspiration that is essential to following Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking, Andy, I don't even care about this. I mean, you're, you're raising questions I've never asked. Can we just talk about something practical? I get that. We'll, we'll get back to that. Some of you are thinking, Andy, why, why belabor the point and you know, risk your career? I mean, why is this so important? This is extraordinarily important to you and it's extraordinarily important to me and it is extraordinarily important to us. And let me tell you who else it's important to. It's important to your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren. And why would I use the word modern? Here's why. When a specific view of inspiration, when a specific view of inspiration that it's you know, verbally inspired or there aren't any errors or do whatever view, whatever, however you wanna tease that out, however you wanna define it. When a specific view of inspiration is elevated to the status of doctrine, fundamental, essential, the Bible becomes an obstacle to faith for some people. In other words, when a view of inspiration is elevated to the status of Jesus is the son of God, or when it's elevated to the status of doctrine and essential, the actual Bible, this is tragic, the Bible becomes an obstacle to faith. That's why I wanna say again, if you left faith because of something about this or in this, you gotta lean back in at least for a few minutes. When we make a specific view of inspiration elevated to the status of doctrine, do you know what happens? We eliminate room for questions. Wait, you mean to tell me? Oh, I, I can't explain it, but that's what the Bible said. That's what God's word said, so don't question it. That's what God's word says. Yeah, but I don't understand. Well, you don't get to understand. This is just what God's word says. So you just accept it, move on. But no, no, it's God's word. It's, it's all true. You can't, you can't ask questions. You can't be curious. And if I can poke around a little bit for some of you who are raised like me and believe like me. Not only can you not be curious, sometimes you can't be honest because you're reading this and you're like, I don't, I'm just, I don't wanna read that part anymore. I don't, I don't, oh no, no, I don't like that part. Jesus has a sword in his mouth and he's gonna smite his enemies and be covered. I don't like that part either. So you know what? I'm just, I'm just gonna kind of stay right here in the middle. I like Psalms and I like Jesus and that other stuff somebody's just else gonna have to figure out. You can't even be honest about your own faith and your own view of the Bible. The reason some of you chuckled, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My kids keep asking me about those parts. I'm like, don't look at those parts. Look at the other parts, right? Well, that, that, that's no way to live. That's no way to worship. That's no way to approach God who created, you know, 600 plus different kinds of beetles. I mean, are you kidding? We should be the most curious and the most open-minded people in the world because our faith isn't anchored to a perfect text. Our faith is anchored to a solitary event outside the walls of Jerusalem that changed everything, including the people who were there and knew Jesus personally. Now, us conservatives, and I'm so conservative theologically, us conservatives, we trend this way because we were told, right? We were told an error, an error in any part of it undermines the credibility of all of it. I hear this all the time, that an error in any part of it undermines the credibility of all of it. Okay, look up here. That's true of your passport, that is not true of the Bible. 
The all or nothing view is mistaken and it is unnecessary. And the problem is the reason we're talking about it, it creates an unnecessary off-ramp to faith. It sets people up for a crisis of faith. The apparent discrepancies and contradictions, this is fascinating to me because I like church history. The you know, apparent contradictions, it says this, but it says that, and these guys don't agree, all that stuff. Do you know, you check it out. That stuff didn't bother anybody in Christendom for the first five centuries. In other words, the people that followed the apostles, the people that wrote and led and suffered and died to protect these ancient texts, none of them were hung up on the fact that some of the details didn't coordinate and they didn't understand how some of the things in the Old Testament could have happened. They just weren't hung up on that. The group that came after the apostles, after they all were martyred or died, they're called the church fathers. The church fathers, many of the church fathers actually knew and were trained by and taught by the apostles. And the church fathers, again, they just weren't hung up on what we get hung up on in terms of the sophistication of the text. I'll, I'll give you um, a good example of that. There was a fourth century bishop from Constantinople. Um, his name is John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, you may have seen quotes by John Chrysostom if you've ever read church history. Fourth century bishop. Here's what he says, and I chose this in particular. Here's what he says about the apparent contradictions or misalignments in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, if you've ever read the uh, different accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, you know they don't line up perfectly. You know, it's like one person or was it four? And there's so many Marys and you know, who got there first and who, I mean, it's, it's just the details don't line up. And of course, you know, agnostics and people who poke fun say, look, there's, it doesn't even line up. Why should we believe all this? Hey, the men and women who brought us the gospels were not bothered by that. The next generation wasn't bothered by that. The next generation. So fourth century um, bishop, here's, here's his approach. Here's what he writes about. It. It's a little clunky because it's, it's old and it's translated. John writes this, but if there be anything touching time or places, like when this happened or where this happened, which they, the gospel writers, have related differently. In other words, they tell the same story, but they tell it differently. This nothing injures the truth of what they have said. In other words, we don't feel like we have to sand off the rough edges and make it all work together. I mean, we know the point they're trying to make, but those things, he goes on, which constitute our life, how to live our lives and furnish out our doctrine. Nowhere is any of them found to have disagreed, no, not ever so little. In other words, this is his way of saying, right, it didn't all line up perfectly, but so what? We got the gist of the story. And besides, Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody agrees on that. And the reason a minute ago that I inserted the word modern, modern is this, and this is so important. The precision, the precision that we demand from written text today was not an ancient expectation. That the precision, in other words, we want grammar to be right, spelling to be right, everything to match. You know, if it's a copy of, a, you know, we're making a copy, oh, it's not. A, the, we, we, the reason we, have, we demand such precision in our modern world is because we can pull it off. But in a world that was mostly illiterate, and they were illiterate not because they weren't smart, they were illiterate because in order to learn to read, there has to be something to read. And texts were so expensive and people didn't have access. So in a world that was primarily illiterate, the precision that we demand from a written text was not even, was, they never even considered such a thing back in ancient times. Again, is there a case to be made that the Bible is without error? Yes. Is holding that view essential to following Jesus? No. 
And if that's why you left, you should reconsider. Now, the more conservative you, you are like me, I realize the more troublesome this message is. And I understand that. But here's why I'm taking the risk. Our, and I say our collectively, our approach to ministry is informed by something the apostle Peter said at a critical junction in the life of the ancient church. There was a meeting in, in Acts chapter 15. This is about 20 years after the resurrection. Some of you know about this. And they had a real big conflict in the church. And the conflict in the church was around the scripture not the Bible. In fact, the gospels hadn't even been written yet. The apostle Paul's just beginning to write. The conflict in the church around the scripture was around what we would consider the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the Jewish or the Hebrew scripture. But the conflict was not around whether or not it was inspired. It wasn't about inspiration. The challenge, the conflict was around application, which was a much bigger deal. There's no way that I can even begin to um, explain, or I, I think uh, uh, elicit the emotions that were in the room as they debated the place of their Bible in the local church. In other words, we have this, they didn't call it a Bible. It was just the books or is the Old Testament. They didn't even call it that because only Christians called it old. The Jewish people, it wasn't old. It's like, no, this is our Bible. But the question is, what do we do with this? And one group said, well, we have to teach it to all the Gentiles. They have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They have to follow and embrace the Messiah the way the Messiah is described and outlined and taught by Moses before they can embrace Jesus as Messiah. Basically, they've got to learn our culture, eat our food, practice our morality. And the men, they got to have a little surgery. And so this is, in fact, this is in the text, Acts 15, read it for yourself. They were requiring that all the Gentile men be circumcised because you've gotta be part of the covenant of Moses before you can become part of the new covenant. This is what they were arguing for. On this, and, and the group that was arguing for this is so fascinating to me, is where these were priests who had become Jesus followers. In other words, and Pharisees who've become Jesus followers. Well, what in the world would cause a Pharisee who you know, just trailed around behind Jesus and persecuted him for three and a half years? What in the world do you think it took to change their mind? The resurrection of Jesus. Now they're in Christians and they're in the church and they're in Jerusalem and they're leaders and they're saying, hey, these Gentiles have to become Jewish before they can become Christian. Peter, the apostle Peter and Paul are saying, oh no, they don't. And they're arguing the opposite. Now listen to what they're arguing. They're arguing that Gentile Christians, which is most of us, do not have to learn, memorize, study, they certainly would never own one, a copy or embrace the entire law, the Old Testament law. Basically they were saying, they don't have to do anything that Moses commanded the ancient Jews, our forefathers to do. Now, we have some suggestions because we got to somehow merge these groups where we're going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. I mean, this was a colossal issue, and this is so cool. The debate goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. Now he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem where these events took place. James stands up. He says, All right, I've made a decision. Here's what he says. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Peter has just told this story. I wish I had time to tell it. It's, it's hard to believe it's even in the Bible. Peter tells a story about being invited to a Gentile home. 
and he didn't wanna go. He's invited to a Gentile home to tell them about Jesus and Peter's like, I'm not going. And he gets there and he finally goes and listen to how he opens, <laughs> this is how he opens his message to all these Gentiles. <clears throat> um, I've never entered the home of a Gentile before and I never wanted to, implication, because you people are nasty, but God made me come here. Okay, so here's what I wanna say to you. Really, you read it for yourself. It is so offensive. Peter says to this group, look, I get it. I get it. I was as anti-Gentile and I was so worried about getting Gentile stuff on me as you guys, but I'm telling you, God has opened the way to the whole world. And if it means setting aside in some way, the way we're thinking about it, our scripture, our Bible, in order to let them in, we do it. So James says, it is my judgment, I love this. In fact, this statement is on the walls of all of our offices at all of our churches. These are our marching orders. This is why I'm making such a big deal out of it. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, if our text has become an obstacle, we need to remove it. These men and women are trying to get into the kingdom of God and there's no way in the world we should allow our Bible to be an obstacle to their faith because the essential element of our faith is a brand new king. The shadow caster has arrived. Everything our text pointed to is a reality. And just as they decided they shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God, we're not gonna make it difficult either. The Bible should never be an obstacle to faith. Is it important? Of course it's important. Is it essential? Yes, it's essential but it should never be an obstacle because the Bible isn't the starting place. Jesus is the starting place. And I know, and I hear the critics already. It's like, yeah, but the gospels are in the Bible. Okay, just, we've talked about the historical sequence of things. That's a ridiculous argument. There was no, the Matthew pre, <laughs> predated, quote, the Bible, Mark predated, the, all the New Testament documents predated the Bible because the Bible wasn't assembled until the fourth century. So it's, there's no argument to be made there. The issue is, who is Jesus? The issue is, who is Jesus? That's it. That's the starting point. That's the ending point. That's the launching point. So what must we believe about the Bible in order to be a follower of Jesus? So I put together kind of a long clunky statement. This is just my answer to that question. The Bible, here's what we have to believe. The Bible documents God's redemptive activity in the world culminating in the arrival of his final king. Listen, the reason Gentile people eventually got really, really, really interested in the Old Testament wasn't because they were interested in becoming Jewish. They weren't even that interested in the Jews. They realized that the Old Testament documented God's redemptive activity in the world and that it had culminated in their lifetime with the arrival of the final king. Listen, the Bible provides us with the backstory and the main story. The, the Bible provides us with the backstory. The Old Testament is a saga of God's people clinging to Yahweh as he prepares the world for his final king. It's, it's ancient history with a divine purpose. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's an over-the-top graphic account of God wading into the mess created by our sin to see the story of our redemption played out to its bitter and bloody, crucify him, crucify him, and. 
the story arc of the entire Bible should cause all of us, all mankind, the entire human race, to drop to our knees in gratitude for what God has done on our behalf, for what God has done on behalf of the world. So I read it every single day. And so should you. If for no other reason, and if you're a skeptic and if you've walked away from faith, and look up here for one second. If for no other reason, here's why you should read the Bible. Because the words of Jesus recorded in the gospels are the very words of God. The words that we discovered last week are the words that bring us back to center. The words that keep us from moving too far to the left or too far to the right in our culture or in our personal lives. The words of Jesus inform our conscience. They fuel our faith and they direct and inform our behavior. And if, if just the words of Jesus were elevated to the place where they should be, it would revolutionize the church and perhaps revolutionize our culture and the world. So that's our fundamental list. That's what's essential. That's what we must believe in order to follow Jesus. And if you'll just embrace the first one, if you'll just embrace the first one, that Jesus is God's, that Jesus is God's son and our king, our resurrected worthy to follow king. The rest, it's kind of detail. But as a teenager, it's detail that changed my life. It's detail that has the potential. If you lean in or lean back in, it's detail that will change yours as well. Because John, who was there for all of it, looking back as an old man, said, I, I, I grew up as a Jewish boy. I, I know the whole story. I know the whole story arc. And now I've experienced the coming of the king. And here's what I would tell you. For God so loved, and once upon a time I didn't believe this, so, for God so loved the world, even the Gentiles in the world, for God so loved the world that he does what you do when you love someone, you, he gave. But we didn't see this coming. He gave his unique son and he gave him to us first as someone we could see and touch and hear and our hands have handled the word of life he would write. For God so loved the world that he gave us what was most precious to him. He gave us his son. He gave us his life. That whoever would lean in, that whoever would believe, that whoever would be open, allow themselves to be convinced, would not be lost to God anymore, but would experience eternal life. That's why it's good news of great joy for all people. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. It's amazing love. It's amazing grace. It's an amazing story. It's amazing that we even have the story. It's all just amazing. And I pray that wherever this lands with us, whether it's a reminder 
or a call for renewal or a call for repentance or, oh my goodness, I, I gotta think about this, that we would just lean in and say, God, if, if that's true, have your way with me, who am I? So please just in this moment, in these moments, just give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard and the courage to embrace it with all our lives. And would you please, please raise up Christians, Jesus followers, churches to get this right for your sake, for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.